You know, I can remember in uh, my late high school, early college days, going to Colorado with the Young Life Ministry. Either uh, as a kid, I was a camper, or early into my college days, I was a leader. And we would go spend time in prayer at night up on these mountains. And it's as if the stars were so close to us. So many stars in the sky. We could count so many more than, or see so many more stars than you could hear. You, it seemed like you could just touch them. I felt so close to God as I thought, there is a creator that spoke all of these stars into existence. And he knows every star by name. And he knows me. And he wants to have a relationship with me. And he has a purpose for my life. And my heart would just expand with this peace and this joy. Fast forward time in my college years, I was going through a doubt storm, and I can remember waking up in the middle of the night wondering if indeed God really spoke all those stars into existence, or if they sort of came about by chance, if there was a God, and if that God did know my name, and if there was a God, and that God did create the stars, and He did know my name, how do I know that that God is the God of the Bible? And I would go through this doubt storm, and and I would be, I, I can remember I had these finance books and economics books that I, I had to read and I had finals coming up, but I pushed them all aside and I was just devouring the Bible at the UTA library. And I would pray, God, I just need to know the truth. I have to know the truth. And if the truth means I'm Catholic or Church of Christ or Baptist or atheist, I, I don't care. I just, I, I've got to know that I know the truth. You know, doubt storms aren't bad. David had a doubt storm. It's Psalm 13. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts, etc.? John the Baptist, the very one who baptized Jesus and pointed to Jesus that that's the one who will take away the sins of the world and told his disciples, don't follow me, follow him. I must decrease. He must increase. When he found himself in prison, he had a doubt storm. He sent word to Jesus. Are you the one or should we expect another? A doubt storm. Jesus told John's messengers, go back and tell John the blind are receiving the sight, the dead are being raised, the gospel is being preached. I'm the one. So what did Jesus do then? Turn around and criticize John? No, Jesus told the crowd, no greater man has been born of woman than John. This guy who's going through a doubt storm. Even Jesus, when he was on the cross, said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A doubt storm. Doubt storms aren't bad. Doubt storms are honest. But it's what we do with the doubt storm that matters the most. We have to take the doubt storm to Christ through prayer. We have to take our doubts and line it up with the scripture. And when you do that, those doubt storms will become anchors of your faith. You realize that what you thought were contradictions are not contradictions. They're foundations. And you realize that this is not the word of man. It's the word of God. And this ancient document is not simply filled with myths It's filled with miraculous interventions when God stepped into history and it inspires you because if he did it for them, he'll do it for you. And he has done it for me over the years. And what I want to do with our remaining time together is give you seven reasons why I believe the Bible is the word of God. And I've realized I don't have to go to Colorado to look up at the stars. I open up the pages of scripture and I can meet with God And he does know my name and he speaks his life into my heart and his love over me and his promises to me. And that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. 
And my prayer is that as a result of our time together, you will cling more to the Word of God than you do your cell phones. You will pursue the Word of God more than pet sins. You will find greater security in the Word of God than anything in this world. There's certainly more than seven reasons to believe that this is not the Word of man. It is the Word of God. This is not an ancient book of myths. This is a relevant book. It is the Word of God, authoritative in our life today, in the roadmap to our life being blessed and our heart being filled. There's many more reasons than seven, but I just want to share with you seven tonight, and I'm excited about our time together. So if you have your Bibles, if you would, please open it with me to the book of John. John chapter 1. And we read. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. Last week we debunked evolution through this passage. And I encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon. In Him was life, and that life was the light of mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is the Word, and the Word became... Jesus is God, and God, the Word, became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Seven reasons why I believe the Bible is the Word of God. The first reason is that Jesus endorsed it. Jesus' testimony Himself. There is been no greater figure throughout the corridor of history than Jesus. Born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth. When people heard Jesus was from Nazareth, they said, Nazareth, what good can come from Nazareth? Jesus never left a geographical area larger than the size of America's smallest state, Rhode Island. He never held a political office. He never held an official religious office. In his 33 years on this earth, he never wrote a book. His followers were a bunch of ragamuffins. He didn't have much to his name. An article of clothing was all he had when he died. He had to borrow a tomb. His followers scattered at the moment of his death. His life, humanly speaking, by all practical purposes at the time of his crucifixion, seemed to be a failure. And yet he split time in half B.C. A.D. Even Muslims believe that Jesus was so great that he's a prophet. He's much more than a prophet. Even the Hindus believe that Jesus is so great, he was a God. He's much more than a God. He's the only God. Even atheists believe that Jesus was so great that they don't have anything bad to say about Jesus. They just wish that his followers looked more like him. But we know Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords who's coming again. He's the most influential figure throughout the course of history. More hospitals have been constructed in his name. More orphanages, more schools, more nonprofit charitable organizations, more donations, more benevolence has been given in the name of Jesus than anybody else in history. And what did Jesus say about the Bible? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22, verse 43, referring to the Psalms, David speaking by the Spirit. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22 when he was confronted by the Sadducees and he's put them in their place. I won't go into the context, but this portion of that verse for now is all we're going to look at. But Jesus said in reference to the Old Testament scriptures, have you not read what God said to you? Jesus endorsed the Bible as the word of the spirit of God, as the word of God. That's enough for me. But let's continue. The second reason I believe that the Bible is... 
the Word of God, authoritative in our life today, the blueprint for our blessings and our effectiveness and our success and our uh, giving glory to God and our eternal security. The second reason I believe the Bible is the Word of God is its scientific accuracy. Does that surprise you? Sometimes people think, oh, the Bible is an ancient book, and uh, because of its scientific um, inaccuracies is why I don't believe the Bible is the Word of God. Nothing could be further from the truth. The Bible is more scientifically pure than evolution. Evolution itself is inconsistent with the very definition of science. We looked at that last week. But let's look at some of the reasons why the Bible is scientifically pure and scientifically accurate. Interestingly, other ancient documents have their own uh, interpretation, their own belief system of the, the, the origin of, of life and how the cosmos or the cosmos are arranged. The ancient Greeks, in fact, believed that a god named Atlas held the earth up on his shoulders. You go further back in history and you read about the Egyptians. The Egyptians were highly intelligent. They were a highly sophisticated culture. They believed that the earth was securely fixed on five pillars. The ancient Hindus believed that the earth was firmly fixed on the back of an elephant. And when that elephant shook, we had our earthquakes. So some thinkers, some real philosophers began thinking about that. And they said, well, that sounds good, but what's the elephant on? And they decided that the elephant is on the back of a turtle. And that made sense. Until they started thinking, well, what's the turtle on the back of? And they decided that the turtle was on the back of a big snake. And so that made sense. But then they got to thinking, what's the snake on? And they decided that the snake is swimming through some cosmic sea. When we read the scripture, we don't read any such bogus accounts of creation or the arrangement of the cosmos. We read in Job, which is the most ancient book of scripture and probably the most ancient uh, scripture known to man today. We read in Job chapter 26, verse 7, Job writes, God spreads out the northern skies over empty space. He suspends the earth over nothing. How did he know that? Because he was inspired by God who created it all. Last week we touched on Albert Einstein said that his greatest cosmological blunder was that he thought that the universe was constant, it was static. In other words, there's a star fixed there, that star will always be there. And then we realized and Einstein conceded that the universe is expanding The universe is expanding, in fact, faster than the speed of light. And no less than seven times in Scripture do we read that God spreads out the sky. He unrolls in the sky like a scroll or like a tent. How did these ancient writers know that the sky and the heavens are spreading? Because they are inspired by the God who created it all. In 1492, we discovered that the earth was round. That was the common thought. That was the popular thought. That was the science of the day. Yet, in 700 B.C., the prophet Isaiah writes, God sits enthroned above the circle or the sphere of the earth. How did Isaiah know that the world was a sphere in 700 B.C.? Because he was inspired by the God who created it all. In 150 B.C., there was an astronomer that took up the task of counting the stars in the sky. 
And finally, after much study and research, he set his pen down and he rubbed his tired eyes and he said, I did it. I've counted all the stars in the sky. You want to know how many stars he counted? 1,022 stars. And that was the astronomy of the day. That was the science of the day. And then, about 175 years later, another astronomer took the task of counting the stars. And you want to know how many stars he counted, this brilliant Greek astronomer? 1,056 stars. They added about 30 stars to the number. And then later, Galileo created the telescope, and they looked through it, and they lost their breath because they realized things are really big, much bigger than we ever imagined. And today we know that in our galaxy alone, there are 100 billion stars, and we know that in the greater universe, there are more galaxies than there are stars in our galaxy, and each of these galaxies contain hundreds of billions of stars. No wonder Jeremiah wrote, the stars in the sky are countless. How did he know that? Because he was inspired by the God who created it all. Do you realize that our George, our founding father, George Washington, was actually accidentally killed by his physicians. They were bleeding him, and, well, he wasn't getting better, so they continued to bleed him, and uh, he wasn't getting better. They continued to bleed him, and eventually he died. Too bad they didn't read in the book of Leviticus when Moses wrote that the life of every creature is in its blood. How did he know that even before? How did they know that even before Washington's physicians did? Because they were inspired by the creator of all things. Very interesting. There is a doctor, Samuel Weiss, if I pronounce that right, Samuel Weiss, in 1847 in Venice, who was overseeing a clinic that was giving birth to babies. And there was a ward where there were doctors that were giving birth to babies. And that was the first ward. And the second ward, uh, midwives were giving birth. And the doctor's mortality rate of the mothers who were giving birth was 20%. 20% of the women who gave birth died. One out of every five women who gave birth died in the doctor's ward. In the midwife's ward, it was about 2%. One in some 75 or 85 women who gave birth died. And he was trying to figure out why are the the women dying in this first ward at a much, much higher rate than this ward. And he began trying to say, well, what's what's the difference? Well, these ladies... Are the midwives are, are, are having the mothers give birth on their side. So they started doing that over there to no effect. Well, the, the, when people died, the chaplains walked through, the priests walked through, and they ring a bell. Maybe that's giving people fear. And uh, so they stopped that practice to no effect. But then he realized the doctors in the first ward are also in another tent conducting autopsies on the mothers who died. And they went straight from the tent of the autopsies into the delivery ward. And without washing their hands, they were just delivering babies. And they were passing this plague to this disease to the mothers. And he thought, well, maybe that's it. So he began making the doctors and the midwives all wash their hands with the chlorine solution. And they resisted him, and they intensely fought him, but he stuck to his guns, and he eventually got fired before it, for it. But when they began washing their hands, the mortality rate dropped from 19% to less than 2% in both wards. Too bad they didn't read Moses' writings in the book of Numbers. 
Anyone who is in a tent where a person dies will be unclean seven days with all of these uh, ceremonial laws on how to wash yourselves. How did Moses and the Israelites who had no idea about germs and bacteria know to do that? Because Moses was inspired by God who created all things. I believe the Bible is the word of God, one, because of Jesus' testimony, two, because of its scientific accuracy, three, because of its historic reliability. Listen to Luke, in fact, who was himself a physician, writing in Luke chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod the Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip the Tetrarch of Eturia and Trachonitis and Lysanias, the Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Ananias or Annas and Sapphias, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Man, this sentence was a beating, wasn't it? And how many times do we read aspects of Scripture like this where we think, why did God write with such detail? I wish that, that, that he just kind of kept it more light. It's really tough to work through. For many reasons, but one of which is because there was a, uh, a famed ar- archaeologist in the early 1900s, Sir William Ramsey, who read the book of Acts written by Luke and the Gospel of Luke, and he spent the next 14 years in Israel with the intent to debunk Luke's historical accounts. And he concluded, Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy, but this author should be placed along with the very greatest historians. In Daniel, we read that the king of Babylon, Belshazzar, had a drunken party. And he looked up on the wall. And he, had, and he saw a, a hand that was writing something very mysterious. And he got all of his wise men together and none, none of them could figure out what it was. And so they brought in Daniel, and Daniel interpreted this mysterious event. And Belshazzar was so impressed with Daniel that he said, as a result of that, I'm going to give you all sorts of riches and make you the third ruler in this kingdom. And that night, according to Daniel's prophecy and word, the kingdom of Babylon was overrun and taken by the the Persians and Medes. Interesting. And for centuries, historians scoffed at this, saying, ha, Daniel was not the last, Daniel was not the last king of, or Belshazzar was not the last king of Israel. There was another king, or the the, the last king of Babylon. There was another king that was the last king of Babylon. But then as archaeologists continued to search and they discovered artifacts, where it indeed did say Belshazzar's name along with another king. And this other king happened to be Belshazzar's father, and they co-reigned. But his father was a big game hunter, so he was often out on, 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 on hunting game. And Belshazzar was ruling the kingdom. So the cynics were right in that Daniel was not only the last king. There was another king of Babylon, but they were wrong in that it was not Belshazzar as being the last king of Babylon. But doesn't that give insight and revelation to this verse in Daniel chapter 13, 16, when Belshazzar tells Daniel, you'll be the third ruler. Why not the second? Because there was a co-regent empire being led. 
Throughout history, people have scoffed that uh, David didn't really exist. But in 1993, they found a tablet that said the king of Israel, the king of the house of David. For years, they scoffed and said that all of Solomon's riches is exaggerated. But then they discovered stalls that could house up to 450 horses. I've stood in these stalls. And so you realize that Solomon is indeed as rich as the scriptures say. For years, the, uh, many skeptics scoffed and said that the Hittites didn't really exist. That's just a made-up people. But since then, there have been thousands of artifacts and sites that corroborate the existence of the Hittites. I believe the Bible is the Word of God because of Jesus' testimony, because of its scientific accuracy, because of its historical reliability. And I believe the Bible is the Word of God because of its contextual integrity. You know, we could play a game, like I could tell Henry something, and I could tell Henry, I could whisper in his ear, the girl outside is wearing a yellow coat. Then Henry could whisper it to Tony. Tony could whisper it to Dalton. And we could go on and on whispering it to everybody, and by the time it gets to James, James will say that the statement was, I'm really hungry for Whataburger right now. It started out one thing, but it turned into something else. And some skeptics of the Bible say that, how can you trust this ancient document, thousands of years old, and how can you really believe that what you read was what was written? Well, back to Israel. There's a mountain called Mount Qumran that's filled with all of these caves. And there are these, it looks like, hot tubs that are dug deep into the rock. It was for what... It was called the mikvah. You see, there was a group in Israel that was trying to bring about change with the sword. They were called the zealots. There was a group in Israel that was trying to bring about change through politics. They were called the Sadducees. There was a group that was trying to uh, bring about change by holding to the law. They were called the Pharisees. There was another group you don't hear about a lot. And they were trying to bring about change through personal purity and personal repentance and the preservation of the text for the next generation, and they were called the essence. And they retreated from society, and they hid in these caves and lived in these caves in Mount Qumran, and I've been there. And they devoted their entire lives to holiness and repentance and copying the text perfectly. And so before they would begin to copy one text onto a document, they would partake of something called mikvah, where they would walk into these Again, it looked like these hot tubs carved into the stone that was water. And they would step into it and their feet would be in the water. And then they would repent. Oh God, anywhere I've stepped, anywhere I've gone that was inconsistent with your will, forgive me and guide my steps, Lord. And they would walk in deeper and the waters would rise up to their hearts. And they would just say, oh God, renew my heart, cleanse my heart, give me a desire for you, a whole heart toward you. And then they would put their hands into the water and they would repent. God, is anything that my hands have done that have not pleased you, forgive me, I repent. God, my hands are yours, lead me. And they would, they would, they would submerge even lower, and then they would, they would submerge their head underwater. And they would say, God, renew my mind, cleanse my mind. Give me a mind that's focused upon you. And this was called mikvah. This is actually where the practice of baptism came about. And Jesus personalized baptism and coined it as the stamp for his followers. So before these essence would begin copying text, they would 
practice mikvah. And they would thoroughly cleanse their heart and they would cleanse their mind. And then they would go into a room that was designated for copying the text. And they would have the paper there. And there would be somebody on the right. There would be somebody on the left. And there would be somebody in the middle who would be writing the text. And say they were going to write uh, the, the book of Genesis. In the beginning, God. And um, they, would, they, they write from right to left because they're writing in Hebrew. And they would write in. But before they would start with the first word, he would say in. And then this guy would say in, okay? He would just, he would confirm that that's the right word. And this guy would say in. And then this guy would write in. And then this guy would look over his shoulder and he would confirm in. And then this guy in. And then in. And then they would go into the. And then the beginning. And then before they said God, they would partake of meek fall all over again. And then they would come back and they'd say, I'm about to write the word of God. Oh God, have mercy on me. And then they would say, God, God, God. And they would write the word God. And they had this elaborate numbering system where they would count from the right so many letters and then down a couple of different times, a couple of different numbers over, down. And if one letter was off, if one jot, yod, was off, they discarded the document and they started all over in the beginning, God. Sometimes people say, well, how can we know that what we have today was what they originally wrote. Well, that's the great contribution of the essence, how they, how they copied these documents. And in 1947, one of the greatest archaeological discoveries of all time, there's a little shepherd kid around those mountains, and he threw a rock, and the rock disappeared, and then he heard something break, and he began investigating, and he discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. In it was a copy of Isaiah chapter 53, written in 100 B.C., and it's word for word what we have today. Some people are skeptics and they say, well, perhaps the, the, the authors of the New Testament went back and they kind of tweaked the Old Testament to make it confirm up with the New Testament a little bit. But the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls blows that out of the water. What we have today was what was originally written. In fact, if you compare it to other ancient documents, for example, uh, Plato. Nobody questions that what we read today from Plato is what Plato uh, what, uh, had originally written. But there's a couple of litmus tests. How many... Um, what is the time frame between when Plato wrote something and the first copy, and how many copies of the original are there? Uh, the, the shorter the time frame, the more credible, the more first copies of the original, the more credible. Plato wrote his documents in 399 B.C., the earliest copy, 900 A.D., a time span of 1,200 years. Number of copies, seven. Aristotle wrote 342-322 B.C. The earliest copy of Aristotle's writings was 1100 A.D., the time span, 1,400 years. The number of copies... 49 first copies. Homer wrote the Iliad. 900 B.C., the earliest copy. 400 B.C., the time span, 400 years. The number of copies, 643 copies. That's huge. That's incredible contextual integrity. What about the New Testament? It's written A.D. 40, A.D. 100. Earliest copy of the New Testament, A.D. 125. A time span of only 25 years. Not like a time span of 1,200 or 14 or 400 years, but a time span of 25 years of the first copy of the original New Testament writings. How many first copies? 24,000. That is incredible contextual integrity. When God writes a book, he knows how to write it. He knows how to preserve it. I believe the Bible is the word of God because of Jesus' testimony, because of scientific accuracy, because of historical reliability, because of contextual integrity, and because of prophetic authority. 
If you guys went to go eat Chinese food tonight, you'd get a fortune cookie, and we all know that it's bogus, right? But still, we feel good about it when it says something so general like, you are a special person, and your future is bright. How many of us know that's bogus, yet doesn't it still kind of make us feel good? I laugh when I read fortune cookies because it's so generalized. Scripture says, Remember the former things, the things of long ago. I am God. There is no other. I am God. There is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning. That's a prophecy. And when God makes known the end of the matter at the beginning, he doesn't do it in bogus, vague, general terms. He does it with incredible, precise detail. For example, in Ezekiel chapter 26, there's a prophecy against Tyre, a city, it's a five-fold prophecy that the city would be destroyed by multiple nations, thrown into the sea, never rebuilt. The fishermen would spread their nets. The city was sieged by Nebuchadnezzar. It was destroyed. It was sieged again by Alexander the Great. They took remnants of, of, of the city when Alexander the Great attacked it because they basically, after the Babylonian destruction, they relocated on an island. It was a kind of a rock island. And Alexander the Great took debris of the destroyed city and he built a causeway to the island city so that he could destroy it. And when he did that, he threw, he, they, they threw a whole a bunch of the rock and the dirt and the dust into the sea to fulfill prophecy. And then when they did destroy the island city, they threw it into the sea. It was a city of incredible influence like New York, but that influence was never rebuilt. You can Google it right now and you can see pictures of fishermen spreading their nets across the rock. Incredible detail. Not to go into Daniel chapter 2, but Daniel outlines the whole course of human history. Daniel chapter 8, it's an incredible prophecy where a goat is chasing a ram. The ram has two horns, the goat has one horn. The goat catches the ram and it devours the ram. The horns in Scripture represent strength. The ram had two horns because it represented the Medes and the Persians. The goat had one horn because it represented Greece and Alexander the Great. The goat wasn't running. The ram was running. The goat was flying. Because Alexander the Great introduced a new way to have warfare, and that was with speed. He would flank his enemies and he would attack them. So the goat was flying with one horn. He devoured the ram. He trampled him. He killed him. And then this horn in its prime broke. Four horns grew in its place. And we know that when Alexander the Great was 33 years old, he died in his prime without a without an heir after he conquered the known world. He had four generals and they quartered the known world that Alexander the Great conquered and these are the four horns that grew in place of the one horn. This is biblical prophecy. It's not fortune cookie stuff. It is incredible precision. A study in biblical prophecy alone is enough to put goosebumps on the back of your neck and to realize this is not a man-made document. I believe the Bible is the word of God because of Jesus' testimony, because of scientific accuracy, because of historic reliability, because of contextual integrity, and because of prophetic authority. And then I believe the Bible is the word of God because of the personal impact that it's had on my life. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. When I was in the fifth grade, I told my parents I was sick and I couldn't go to school. I think I might have faked some coughs or a nauseated stomach. They went to work. 
But for some reason, I didn't watch TV. For some reason that day, I opened up the Bible. And I read it all day long. And by the end of the day, it's like I had washed down two Snickers candy bars with a six-pack of Coca-Cola. I had so much energy. I was wired. I had so much joy in my heart. And I realized there's something different about the Bible. This isn't like my science book or my history book or or fiction books. This isn't like comic books. This thing expanded my heart. The Bible tells us all scriptures God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Jesus says about the Bible, if we abide in the word, we will bear much fruit, we will pray with effectiveness, we will have great joy. If we don't abide in the word, we won't. It's that simple. We will never have more calm amidst our trials than conviction concerning the word of God. We will never have more joy in our heart than devotion to the Word of God. We will never have more power in our prayers than passion for the Word of God. We will never have more fruitfulness in our work than faithfulness to the Word of God. We will will never have more faith in God than attentiveness to the Word of God. It is a supernatural document. The Spirit of God, our Creator, expands our heart with faith and with joy and with passion as we devote ourselves to the Word. That's just my personal impact, not to mention the impact of the Word of God throughout history. Never before has there been a book that has been more loved, more cherished, more bought, more given, more devoted to, more scrutinized, more hated, more feared, more destroyed, more banned than the Bible. And yet, here it is. And all of its scientific accuracy, historic reliability, contextual integrity, prophetic authority... And it continues to impact my life. It continues to change the world. And I believe up to this point, I'm already sold. This is the word of God. But I believe up to this point, skeptics can still hold out. And they can say, okay, it's a unique document. But I still doubt. And I think that the seventh seventh reason that this is the word of God is the trump card that's irrefutable. This is the word of God. Seven. I believe it's the word of God because of its messianic prophecy. If you were going to meet somebody for lunch, you would want to know what restaurant. You would want to know what they look like, who they were. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, in fact, I had a meeting with a couple of really cool Jewish guys from Israel. And they they wanted to meet with me about doing a Passover here for us. for, before a communion service, and so I was talking to him about that. I think it's a really awesome deal, and I just talk about Israel, and I've never met these guys before. We've just been communicating through email, and so we decided to meet. But I didn't just show up at a random day at a random place and sit down at a random table and start talking to random people. We set a time, we set a date, we picked a restaurant, and they even emailed me pictures of themselves so that I would recognize them. And in the same way, 
God said, I'm going to come to visit you and I'm going to remove the sins of the world and I'm going to give you hope, a future, a salvation. I want to have a relationship with you. But it's not random. It's not vague. He gave us very precise instructions, very precise details, exactly what the Messiah would look like. And these are called Messianic prophecies. And Jesus Christ fulfilled over 300 Messianic prophecies about himself. Over 300 messianic prophecies about himself. Here are just a simple handful, randomly chosen. The Messiah would be born of a woman, Genesis 3.15. He would be born of a virgin, Isaiah 7.14. He would be born of the tribe of Judah, uh, Genesis 49.10. He would be from the house of David, Psalm 132.11. He would be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. He would have a triumphal entry on a donkey, Zechariah 9.9. He would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. He would be beaten. He would be spit upon. He would be mocked. His hands and feet would be pierced. Now, I suppose that somebody could... Like say, okay, I want to be the Messiah, or I want people to think I'm the, I'm the Messiah, or I think maybe I am the Messiah, and, and I think maybe the Messiah is to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, so I better do that sometime in my life. But Jesus fulfilled countless prophecies that unless he were God, he would have no control over, such as the fact that he would be betrayed by a friend, 30 pieces of silver, he would be killed in between criminals, he would have nothing to his name, they would gamble for his clothes at his feet, he would borrow a rich man's grave, he would be laid among the rich, he would be born in Bethlehem, he would be called out of Egypt, he'd be raised in Nazareth, on and on and on. Jesus filled over 300 of these messianic prophecies. I remember the first time I read Psalm 22. It was in my college days. It was after this doubt storm. But I was reading my Psalms as I do, and I've continued to do almost every day since. And I read Psalm 22, and I read, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I thought, wow, I I didn't know Jesus was quoting Scripture from the cross. How interesting. And I continued to read, and I realized, oh no. He's not quoting Scripture. He's fulfilling scripture. This is a messianic prophecy. It's the first time I discovered it. We read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and we, it's like a picture where we're looking at the cross. Psalm chapter 22 is the crucifixion, not looking at Jesus on the cross, but looking at the event through the eyes and mind of Jesus. It's fascinating. His thought process, his heart. My hands and feet are pierced. All my bones are out of joint. The crucifix position. Interestingly written in 1000 BC, 700 years before the Romans invented crucifixion. I, my, my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. It dries up within me. Jesus cried from the cross, I thirst. Strong bulls surround me. They cast lots for my clothing and divide my garments in front of me. I can count all my bones. A messianic prophecy that not one of his bones would be broken. The Jews didn't want a dead corpse on the cross on the Sabbath, so they complained to the Romans. And the Romans took this big rod and they went to one victim with this, with this rod and they swung it and they bashed this thief's legs so that he couldn't push himself up for air because your, your, your crucifix victim dies of suffocation. 
His legs were bashed, so he could no longer push himself up, so he suffocated more quickly. They did the same thing to the other guy. They came to Jesus. He'd already given up the spirit to fulfill prophecy. I can count all of my bones. Not one of them is broken. My heart melts away within me like wax. I got through college mowing lawns. That's how I actually met John and Anstella. John is a surgeon. I remember during this era when I just stumbled across Psalm 22, I was talking with John, and John's a surgeon, and he was talking about this prophecy. And he was saying, this is a med- I remember this from all that time ago. This is a medical condition of when your heart ruptures The blood in your system intermingles with the water in your system. And so when they came to Jesus to bash his legs, they didn't because he'd given up the spirit. But that was to fulfill prophecy that not one of his bones would be broken. But to make sure he was dead, they stabbed him in the side with the spear. Blood and water flowed because his heart had ruptured. Jesus didn't die of suffocation. He died of a ruptured heart. In the Garden of Gethsemane the night before, Jesus said, My heart is sorrowful even to the point of death. At the anticipation of the sins of the world weighing upon Jesus. And when he was on the cross, the sins of the world was upon him. And his heart ruptured as a result. And blood and water flowed. And we read in Psalm chapter 22, 1000 BC, My hands and feet are pierced, all my bones are out of joint. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. I can count all my bones and my heart melts away within me like wax. This is just one chapter. And Jesus fulfilled over 300 specific messianic prophecies. Mathematician Peter Stoner said that the likelihood of somebody randomly fulfilling just seven of the over 300 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled is one in 10 to the 17th power. That's a one, that's a 10 with 17 zeros behind it. That's a big number. And so he put, a, he put a picture to this statistic, this likelihood of somebody randomly fulfilling just seven of the over 300 messianic prophecies Jesus fulfilled. He said it's like uh, taking silver dollars, filling up the entire state of Texas with silver dollars two feet deep, and having just one silver dollar with a black dot on it, randomly putting it somewhere in the state of Texas, shuffling all the silver dollars up, blindfolding somebody, having them in an airplane, having the airplane randomly circle the state of Texas, and then that person skydive, parachute out, and then he lands, he's still blindfolded, and he just starts randomly meandering around, and then he just randomly stops, and then he shuffles through the silver dollars, blindfolded, and the very first one he picks up is the one with the black dot on it. That likelihood is 1 in 10 to the 17th power. The same likelihood of somebody randomly fulfilling just 7 of the over 300 prophecies that Jesus himself fulfilled about the Messiah. I believe the Bible is the word of God. Jesus said that it was. It is scientifically pure. It is historically reliable. It is contextually sound. It's prophetic authority. The personal impact it has on my life, not to mention the world, and it's messianic prophecies. We had better align our lives with the word. We better make sure that we're in sync with the word because this isn't just simply an ancient document filled with myths or the writing of men God wrote this book 
to tell us how to live, how to be blessed, how to bring him glory, how to fulfill our purpose in life, how to have joy, how to love others, how to follow Christ, how to have eternal life. Jesus said, he who has the son has life. He who does not have the son does not have life. And if you think, I'm not so sure about that. Are you sure that you want to stand toe-to-toe in opposition with this document, the word of God? All who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And Jesus will save you instantaneously. And he will be with you continually, every step of your life. And he will keep you in his embrace eternally. All right, let's pray, guys. There's two action steps for us. The first action step... Perhaps you've been toe-to-toe and you didn't realize it. You just thought that you were being analytical or you being smart or you didn't understand how remarkable the Bible is. And you thought, maybe there's another way outside of Jesus. And the Bible says there is no other way. If salvation could be gained through any other way other than the name of Jesus, Christ died for nothing. This is what the Bible says. The Bible says there is salvation, there is salvation by no other name under heaven than Jesus Christ. The Bible says all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. I do not advise you to stay in toe-to-toe in opposition with what the Bible teaches. And I want to invite you to call upon the name of the Lord to save you tonight. So from the recesses of your heart, and just pray, God, I know that I'm a sinner. Forgive me. But I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. Come into my life and save me. Thank you for paying for my sins on the cross. And now, Jesus, come into my life and take over. Teach me to follow you. Teach me to love you in return. Give me the courage to follow you. Jesus, be my Lord and Savior. The second action step is for us to dust off our Bibles and cling to our Bibles more than we do our cell phone. You know how it is. You get in your car and you're like, oh, no, I forgot my cell phone. I can't go anywhere without that. Oh, that we would be as dependent upon the Word of God. And it would be our security. It would be our comfort. We would embrace it. We don't have to go to Colorado and look at the stars to see the face of God. We just have to go into our word. And we have to read it. And if you haven't read it in a while and it's time that you dust it off, then I encourage you to start with the book of Psalms. Just open it up in the middle of the Bible. That's the Psalms. Read from the Psalms every day. Read them as your prayers back to God. There's promises there. Believe those promises. Pray those promises. God is faithful. Storms have come and gone. But anytime you believe a promise that God has given you personally and you stand upon it, the storm will come and go, but you will remain standing on firm, solid ground. But if you're not standing up on the word, you're not embracing an anchor, and the storm will come, and you could be swept away with it. Cling to a word. Read the word. Stand up on the promises. Pray the promises. Believe the promises. Resist your five senses. Cast down your emotions that lie to you. Embrace the promises that will give you hope and joy. Read, the, read from the Psalms every day. And... Go to the fourth book of the New Testament, John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and just start reading that. If there's an example to follow in Christ, follow it. If there's a prayer to pray, pray it. If there's a promise to believe, stand upon it. Claim it. If there's an error to avoid, avoid it. And pray, oh God, 
Unite my heart to delight in your word and not the world. Unite my heart to delight in the word, not the world. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that we would be people of the book, that we would be people of your word, that we would hunger for your word as as if it's the bread of life, because it is. We would thirst for your word as if it's the living water that would restore our soul. God, we will seek your face through your word. We want to be people of the word. We want to be people who are in your word every day. And your word will illuminate our countenance and expand our heart. And you will be glorified through our lives. We commit, we resolve this week, every day, to seek your face through your word. Because your words are life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I would just like to say thank you all so much for being here. Dive into your word. If you don't have a Bible, just... Take the Bible in front of you at home. It's yours. Read the Psalms every day. Read the book of John every day. We'll continue this series next week, Myth or Messiah. And as Reuben mentioned, that on December the 24th, we're going to have a special church family Christmas service. It's a beautiful candlelight Christmas service. It's my favorite service out of the years. My favorite time is a church family together out of the whole year. So please just incorporate your family plans into that. And, and all of HopeWorks will be coming together on Christmas Eve. We'll still have our, our, our 10.30 a.m. service on, on the 24th, but then that evening we'll come back together at, at 6 p.m. for our Christmas Eve service. So with that, um, you're dismissed, and you guys meet a couple of people that you don't know yet. I'm praying for you. Have a great week.